Welcome, everybody. Glad you could be here today. And if you're joining us online, we'd like to welcome you here as well as we worship our Heavenly Father and enjoy the fellowship of the church. And I don't know if you got my email this week or saw my little back porch video I posted the other day, but a lot of exciting things are happening here at the church. And I just want to briefly summarize uh, just a couple of those things. We have added two new services this weekend. And this is exciting that we've had to open up more services to accommodate people coming back and, and all the new folks that are joining us. But we now have Saturday night, we have a 5 p.m. service and we have a 6.30 p.m. service. And in between that, we have a pizza fellowship from 6 to 6.30. Some of you didn't know that, did you? We serve pizza every Saturday night. And some of you are like going, well, I missed that email. So what am I doing here? Anyway, hey, we want to let you know we've added another service on Saturday nights. We've got that pizza fellowship um, every weekend. And then on Sunday mornings, we are adding back our 11.30 a.m. service. So immediately following this one, we'll have another service. So if you're counting, that's right, we have five services now. And you're like, man, isn't that more than what we had before coronavirus? Yes, it is. Um, but we're doing that because we've removed a bunch of seats in here. And we want to create as many opportunities for people to spread out. Everybody's got a little bit different comfort level with what's happening in the world today. And I just want you to know, I am thrilled that you're here. And we're trying to do everything we know how to do to create as many opportunities where we can still come to church and feel comfortable. And let me just say a quick word to those of you that are watching from home. That, that I know sometimes it's easy to form habits. And during this coronavirus, it it's might have been really easy to get out of the habit of going to church and just stay at home on Saturdays or Sundays. But let me just encourage you that if you don't have a compromised immune system or really no other reason to not come to church, let me just challenge you to pray about that and, and, and make it a point, make it a priority in your life to create a new habit and to get back into church and join us here because I think we're all here would agree. It is great to be in God's house, sing and worship, and being together. It's being together. That's right. Now, obviously, if you've got a very good reason to, to not come back because of a compromised immune system or your comfort level's not there, that's between you and the Lord. You'll, no pressure from me. But if it's all about creating a new habit, let me just encourage you, let's come back and join together with your church family. We'd love to have you, and we miss you, and we hope you'll be back soon. Hey, let me ask you guys something. Do you enjoy a good story? I know I sure do. I mean, whether that's reading a book and just being totally engaged in that book or going to see a movie and being totally engaged in a good story, or do you have one of those friends that's just a natural storyteller? It's like when they start to tell a story, like, oh, this is going to be good. You guys got to listen. What is it about stories that make them good? Every story has a lot of elements, but there is one part of every story that just shoots it off into the stratosphere of greatness. And you know what that is? It's a good plot twist. You know what a plot twist is? A plot twist is that unexpected development. Oh, I didn't see that coming. A plot twist is like when the good guy of the story actually is revealed to be the bad guy of the story. And that's an incredible plot twist. Or like in the story, somebody you think is dead comes back at the end and they are alive. And you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. A plot twist is just something you didn't see coming. It's an unexpected development. And it changes the whole trajectory of the story. You know, probably one of the greatest plot twists that there ever was came in 1980 in one of the greatest movies that was ever created, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. 
Do you know what moment that plot twist that I might be referring to? It's that moment when Darth Vader has that epic battle with Luke Skywalker and Luke gets his arm chopped off and he crawls out onto the ledge. You know the scene I'm talking about? And Darth Vader, he looks out at Luke and what does he say? Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. I know this movie by heart, you guys. I've seen it so many times. I know it by heart. I love Star Wars. And Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. And Luke goes, he told me enough. He told me you killed him. And Darth Vader says, no. Say it with me. I am your father. And the whole theater went, oh my goodness. I can't. It was one of the best kept plot twist secrets in all of movie history. And it was just a shocking moment. Now I'm going to date myself just a little bit. In 1980, when this movie came out, I was four years old, okay? So I was not in the theater when this happened, but some of you were. How many of you remember in 1980 going to see this movie? And wasn't that a shocking moment when it was revealed that Darth Vader was Luke's dad? Sorry if I just blew it for some of you that haven't seen the movie. It's been 40 years, y'all. Go see it. Anyway, my sister, Sonia, um, she's nine years older than me and one of the biggest Star Wars fans you're ever going to meet. And she, if she were here, she would tell you how she vividly remembers sitting in the theater, being, you know, just on the edge of her seat, watching this epic lightsaber battle and just, and just being shocked when Darth Vader revealed that he was Luke's dad. You know what's interesting about Star Wars is that uh, this is one of those movie trilogies. Now, I guess there's, what, nine of them. Um, I, I, not guess. I know exactly. I know all those movies, too. But... <laughs> Anyway, this, this movie seems to have captured the imagination of every generation. Since, have you noticed that? Every next generation, new generation, just falls in love with these movies. And here's something that, that has been happening. Kids that are falling in love with this movie all over again, they don't know some of the secrets that get revealed. You know, like this moment that we all know now, it's not a shocker, but they're watching it for the very first time and they're being blown away. The same shock is there. If you ever want to kill an hour of your life by just doing nothing, go on YouTube and search for parents filming kids watching Empire Strikes Back. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of videos. And I'm just going to show you one that I find hilarious of this plot twist. Here, watch this. loves a good plot twist, right? I know I certainly do. I love a good plot twist. You know, if you read the Bible, isn't the Bible full of shocking plot twists just like this? You know, a lot of people say that the Bible is just this dry, dusty book. That's just because they don't read it. Because if you read the Bible and you gauge the Bible and you read these inspired words of God, you realize there's incredible plot twists all throughout the scripture. The greatest plot twist in all the Bible, in all the world, was Jesus going to the cross dying there and being placed in the tomb. 
And there was a couple days in there where it felt like all hope was lost. And you read about the disciples and the followers of Jesus. And there was mourning and there was sadness. And there's this moment where you wonder if Satan didn't just have a moment of, look what I did. I finally won. I defeated Jesus. Only three days later, the earth shook and the tomb flung wide open. And Jesus comes out alive and he changed the world in the greatest plot twist that there ever was. And that plot twist is still affecting all of our lives because Jesus coming alive inside of each of us, isn't that the greatest plot twist that we never saw coming in our own lives? How many of you are shocked that you're a follower of Jesus today? Never saw that coming. Today we're continuing our old school series and we're going to study about another great plot twist in Scripture This plot twist led to one of the most unexpected outcomes, and and when it happened, it changed the trajectory of lives of those who experienced it, and even to this day, it still is changing lives as people read this encounter in Scripture, and they're like, I want to be like that. I want faith that looks like that. This is an incredible plot twist that we're going to see today. Now, so far in this series called Old School, we've been trying to define what old school is and look at examples in the Bible of this kind of old school faith. I've been talking about old school like this. Old school is kind of like no bells or whistles. It's tried and true. It's classic. It's proven. Stands the test of time. It's just that good old Bible-believing, Christ-honoring faith. That's old school. That's what I'm talking about. And we're going back into a time of history in the Bible where there were some great examples of this old school faith. We've been looking at the example of Daniel uh, two weeks ago, and last week we saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we learned in these two examples that, number one, old school faith is anchored in conviction. We saw that with Daniel, didn't we? He had decided, he drew his lines, and I'm not going to eat that food, it's going to defile myself, and he would not break. We saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that their old school faith is that, hey, we're going to obey God, not man's expectations. And that's what old school faith does. We're going to be all about obeying God, not man. And we also learn that in old school faith, it just doesn't blend with society. Get your Bibles with you. Go ahead and open to Daniel chapter 6. That's where we're going to be spending our time today. Daniel, he is still living in captivity in a season of the Bible that's known as the Babylonian captivity. And, and uh, this is that season where, you know, God was punishing the Israelites because of their rebelliousness, their idol worship, and he allowed them to be hauled off into captivity, taken 900 miles away from their homeland into a foreign land in, in Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar was their king, and, and this is where we catch up with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6... I want you to understand that the days of when Daniel stood up to the king and said, I won't eat your food, many decades have passed since that moment. The moment of the fiery furnace when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. That has all happened many years ago. And we get down to Daniel chapter 6, we learn that King Nebuchadnezzar, he's long gone. In fact, the Babylonians aren't even in power anymore. They have been conquered by a new country. The Medes and Persians tag-teamed up, and they conquered the Babylonians. And if you ever wonder where the phrase, I can see the handwriting on the wall, came from, read Daniel chapter 5, and you'll have your answer. Because in Daniel chapter 5, we see the Medes and the Persians conquer the Babylonians, and Daniel is caught up right in the middle of all this. 
So now in Daniel chapter 6, we learn that Daniel has a new king that he's under. His name is King Darius. And that there's a whole new country governing everything. And this new king comes in and he decides to reorganize the country how he sees fit since he's the leader now. That's Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. Let's read about it. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. I was like, whoa, well, hang on a minute. Maybe this isn't so bad for Daniel. Sure, there's a new country that had come in, but Daniel so stood out from everybody else, the king was so impressed. He's like, Daniel, I'm going to put you in charge of everything. This looks like an incredible promotion. But what Daniel doesn't understand at this point in his life, what nobody could see coming, is that Daniel is about to, to face perhaps what, his, perhaps what is his biggest challenge in life yet. It's going to happen in Daniel chapter 6. Something that's also really interesting to, to note here, and it, and it may escape you if you're not following the timeline. At this point in Daniel's life, he is somewhere between 80 and 90 years of age. Most Bible scholars tag him right about age 86 by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6. And this is at an age when, when many people who, who get up between 80 and 90, they're not looking for a lot of drama in their lives, okay? At my age, I'm not looking for a lot of drama either. But when you get to a certain age, it's like, listen, I, listen I, I'm not looking for stress. I'm not looking for drama. But it sounds, seems like here in Daniel's life, he gets into his 80s and his responsibilities are increasing. The pressure on him is increasing, not decreasing. I remember as a kid growing up in Sunday school, um, um, we would learn this story. It would cycle through about once a year. And our Sunday school teacher would break out the old flannel boards. You remember those? And we do the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and the lion's den. And she'd stick these characters up on the flannel board. And, of course, there's always one character that has had its head ripped off somewhere in history. And so you got to replace him with maybe, like, Luke or Paul. And you pretend, well, Paul is going to be Shadrach. We've, all, we've been there if you grew up in church, I'm talking about. As my Sunday school teachers taught me this story, I don't ever recall a moment when Daniel was presented as an older man. That fact eluded me until many years later. No, Daniel is well along in years by the time that this incident in Daniel chapter 6 happens. So like if you go back to chapter 1, he comes into captivity as a teenager. As a 15 or 16 year old, he stood up to the king and said, I am not going to eat the food from your table. All these years have passed and now he is under a new king, new leadership, and he's in his 80s. And he's about to face his biggest challenge ever. I find this incredibly encouraging because even as an older guy, he is faithfully serving the Lord. There's no evidence that throughout the course of his life, he ever faltered and he ever changed. And what a great example that God's will be done in our lives, whether we are in our 80s or 90s or whether we are teenagers. There is no age limit on serving God. And you know, as we get older and I, as I get older and I think about it a little bit more than I used to a few years ago. But as we get older, is there a temptation or does this thought sometimes sneak up on you where you might say, you know what, I've done my time serving the Lord. It's really someone else's turn now. Yeah, I'm really too old to serve God anymore. 
Has those thoughts ever snuck up on you? Or God can't use me anymore. I, my, my serving days, my, my impact for the Lord, that, those, those days are, are behind me. You know, the Bible certainly doesn't ever indicate, not in one place, that there is an age limit for serving God, or that you reach a certain cap in your abilities to serve our Heavenly Father, or there ever comes a point where God says, you know, I'm done with you, thanks for your service. I don't read that anywhere in, in Scripture that we reach a certain point in life and, and He just stops using us, or our influence stops, or, or that the boundaries fall off and we don't have to obey certain things that the Lord puts in front of us. You know, I, I see these studies that they do all the time, and they all agree with each other that people are living longer lives these days, longer than, than in many years. And it's not just in the length of years, but it's in the quality of life. People are living longer, more quality-filled lives. We live in Bella Vista. I, just, I think you guys know that. And, uh, and Bella Vista is, for many years and still is, a retirement community on many levels, and any study you read still says Bella Vista is one of the top 10 places in America to retire, and many of you are here because you know how true that is. And I've lived in Bella Vista for six years now, and this is my observation of living in this community and serving this church, that I don't know very many people who turn 65 and retire and come to Bella Vista because they desire to sit in their rocking chair on their front porch and watch the world go by. That's not my observation, because this is not a community that's like that. This is a very active community. People are engaged. This is just the, the world that, that we live in, and, and people today all across America are retiring in their mid-60s, and they're very healthy. They've got lots of energy, and they've got more time than they've ever had in their lives, and they are engaging in kingdom work at a level they've never known before. We're seeing it in church. We see it right here in our church. We're seeing it all across the country that, that people reach this age like, put me to work, God. I'm not even close to being done. And it is awesome. And I see with Daniel, I see a man who God says, Daniel, you are far from being done. And I think about our church family. I think God wants you to hear this today. You are far from being done serving me and what I have planned for you. You know, it's hard to argue that, you know, Daniel's greatest impact for God came after his 80th birthday. You can't really argue that. His greatest moment, his greatest impact happened after his 80th birthday. But at the same time, his, his, his greatest test of faith came after his 80th birthday. Uh oh, there's no age limit on what God can do through you. So let's look what happened. Look at verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And I find that to be a powerful testimony. An examination of his entire life yielded not one skeleton in the closet. Somebody tell me how you can be a politician from the age of 15 to 85 and not have one skeleton in there, not one shady deal, not one accusation, not one impropriety, not one thing that anybody could look at and say, you did something out of line. It's because Daniel is squeaky 
clean. And this is probably a, a reason why they didn't like him very much. Because with Daniel around, we can't get away with nothing. I bet you Daniel held their feet to the fire. I bet you he held them accountable and he kept a close watch. They couldn't get nothing past Daniel. They're like, we got to get rid of this guy. And so they went after his character and they quickly learned that there was nothing there that they could attack. So they had to change strategy. Look at verse 6. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, Oh, king, live forever. This is where the buttering up comes from here. The royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the basically everybody have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown in the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. These evil leaders, they could not find a weakness in Daniel's character. So you know what they did? They found a weakness in their king. And what was his weakness? It was pride. Pride. You know, we talked about this last week because King Nebuchadnezzar suffered from the same ailment. That, that pride, he thought himself as a god. And it was not uncommon for kings and leaders of countries to think of themselves in terms of deities. And so when these guys came to the king and said, oh, king, you're the best. You're the greatest. Look what you've done. You're awesome. You know what you should do? You should make everybody pray to you for 30 days. And the king goes, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Pride had blinded him. He was so egotistical. And, and they said, you know what else? If they don't do it, Let's throw them in the lion's den. And you got to admit that reading through the book of Daniel, they're pretty creative with their executions. We're talking about fiery furnaces. We're talking about lion's dens. You know there's some fear factor involved here, right? Fear factor involved in controlling people. If you've got a big blazing furnace, if you've got a big den of lions, and the threat is you're going to go in there if you don't do what we say, well, people tend to fall in line. But that doesn't mean they didn't use these things. And so that was the punishment. You're going to be thrown in the lion's den. Now, listen to what Daniel did when he found this out. Look at verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Do you know what changed in Daniel's life when the king issued this law? Nothing. Nothing. There wasn't one thing that changed about his faith. You know why? Because Daniel's faith was already out in the public. Daniel already lived a very consistent life. Everybody knew that. And these guys that came against Daniel, they knew he wouldn't bend. They knew he wouldn't break. That was the whole point. Pass a law that we know that Daniel won't follow. And so when it happened, Daniel didn't break stride. He just did what he always did has done. He prays to the Lord. Now, there's this uh, passage in the Bible in First Chronicles chapter 6 that seems to indicate uh, in, an instruction that if any Israelites ever captive and taken away, that they are to pray towards Jerusalem, towards the temple. And it seems to be this is what perhaps Daniel is following. He is opening his window, facing Jerusalem, facing the temple, and he's praying, which is obedient, in his mind, obedient to what God would have him to do. You know, it seems like in recent years that there's been a lot of chatter all the time about legislation, 
chatter in the halls of the lawmakers uh, that seem to be um, um, coming against Christians and our ability to just faithfully serve the Lord. And it makes you wonder, one of these days, is there going to be a law passed here in our country that takes a more extreme approach? It has a little bit more teeth in it than some of them do today. We're seeing some of the fringes of these things from time to time. When, when you see pressure put on schools to remove Christian activities because of the threat of lawsuits or bad press. We've, seen the, we've already seen the Ten Commandments come down off the walls of our courthouses and our public places. And, you know, we, we see how sometimes uh, boys that play football for their high school, they want to pray before the game, and it's heavily scrutinized, and, it, and it's looked down upon in some places. We're, we're seeing some of this stuff, what I would say, on the edges. But what happens? If it moves from the edges in. I mean, what if worst case scenario, we are ordered to not speak about Jesus any longer. Or we are ordered to, to, to do this or that. And it violates our conscience as Christians. I think maybe more realistically, I think where some of these laws could come in maybe in the future. I don't know. I hope not. But I can see where they try to put a muzzle on preachers like me. You cannot talk about this subject and you cannot preach about this subject. You cannot talk about it this way. And if you do, it's discrimination, it's hate speech, and all those things. But let's just say worst case scenario comes about. And they say, you cannot talk about Jesus anymore. You, you cannot pray in public. You cannot do these things. My question would be this. Would you still be public with your faith in those circumstances? Would you still be all public with your faith? If we ever started living in a world that had those kind of of oppression on it. But that's the exact scenario that Daniel finds himself in. The law changed. It changed right out under his nose. But what did not change was his faith in God. He opened his windows like he always does, faces Jerusalem, prays to God, and the whole world could see it. And I challenge, and when I come to this passage of scripture, I challenge myself, say, Joe, could you do that? And I challenge you, could you do that? Or would we justify and, and, and succumb to the temptation that we all know we would face? And that temptation would be this, to say things like, it's just for 30 days. God knows my heart. God knows that he and I are good, and, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not really praying to the king, but I'm not going to open my windows. I'm not going to live my life out in public just like I've always done. I mean, if this scenario was dropped in our laps, could we do what Daniel has done? It's an interesting thing. But as I read this story, Daniel wasn't afraid of his prayer life. He wasn't ashamed of God, who he prayed to. This new law got dropped on him, but nothing changed about his faith. And if you're taking notes today, this might be a really great thing to remember as we continue to define what is old school faith. Old school faith is a public faith. Old school faith is a public faith. And I don't mean an obnoxiously public faith where we turn people off of Jesus because our behavior is so purposely offensive. Or we go out of our way to offend people by starting pointless arguments that are unsolvable. But rather, I'm talking about an old school faith that is lived out in public and it doesn't change just because the world around us does. I'm talking about that kind of faith that Jesus talked about, that city on a hill, the salt of the earth, that let your light shine before men kind of faith. 
That's what I'm talking about because that's old school faith. I'm just going to live my faith out in public. Where did Daniel get this kind of faith? Well, we already saw he was a man of great conviction. We saw that in, in Daniel 1. We saw that Daniel and his friends, they were going to obey God all the time, not man's rules, that they were never going to blend into society. Daniel had been living this way his whole life. And friends, I want you to know, when you live that way, when you just live your life out in public, your Christian life, I'm going to let my light shine before men. I'm just going to let the Lord use me to be a salt of the earth. When you live your life that way, well, you're going to face some lions eventually. No, not the man-eaters we see in the zoo, but some that could be just as ferocious. Because when you live your life out in public for Jesus, you may not get that promotion that you're seeking. You may not get that job that you want. Your neighbors may look at you kind of goofy. It's one of those religious freaks. Friends may not look at you the same way. You might even encounter some good old-fashioned persecution by people who you thought loved you at some point, but now that you became a Christian and you live your faith for Jesus, they just don't want to be around you anymore. And they discriminate against you. When you go old school and live your faith in public, yep, you'll face some lions from time to time. Kind of like Peter and John did in Acts chapter 3. They were just living their life for Jesus. They weren't looking for trouble. They went up to the temple to pray, the Bible says in Acts chapter 3. This was their normal custom. They're just living their life. We're going to the pray. And they encounter a man who had been crippled from birth. And he begs them for money. And do you remember this famous encounter? Peter and John, they said to this man, really famous encounter in the Bible. They said, silver and gold we do not have, but what we do have we give you in the name of Jesus. Stand up and walk. And the guy was healed right there. And he was praising Jesus and jumping around. They got arrested for that. They were just living their life, doing what, the God, what God led them to do, living their life out in public, unashamed. And they got arrested. And, and, and they were commanded never to speak in the name of Jesus again. And I'll paraphrase their response. They said, well, go pound some dirt. That's what they said. We're going to do what the Lord wants us to do. We're not going to obey you. We're going to obey God. And we're going to, listen, there's nothing that you can do that's going to stop us from talking about Jesus. When you go old school and you live your faith in public, you will face some resistance. Well, the story goes on like this with Daniel, that uh, obviously he continued to pray. All these leaders, they went back to the king, and they said, Darius, didn't you make a law that says everybody's got to pray for you for 30 days? He goes, oh, yes, I did. It cannot be reversed. Well, Daniel, Daniel doesn't obey. He's the only one who doesn't obey, and, and it's time to throw him in the lion's den. And the Bible doesn't say that King Darius and Daniel were great friends. It doesn't tell us that. But the king gets very distraught over this. And he realizes that this law is going to put Daniel in the lion's den. And he is distraught over this. And what's implied here is that Darius is very fond of Daniel. That Darius probably does have a good friendship with him. I mean, he was going to put Daniel in charge of the whole country. They got to talk from time to time. And he is, he is overwhelmed with emotion that his friend is going to go in the lion's den. And he does everything that he can think of to try to stop this. But he can't do it. Look at verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. 
And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment. So he shut the Wi-Fi off and couldn't watch Netflix that night, that's for sure. And he could not sleep. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us what that last conversation was really like between Darius and Daniel. There's parts of the Bible that I wish, man, can't there just be another paragraph right here? I would love to know what their parting words were because, like I said, it's kind of implied that they're close, that there's great respect for one another. I don't know. If I'm just going to fill in the gaps, and this is complete guesswork because I don't know what they said, but I would imagine it, it sounded much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's conversation with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3. Maybe it was with a little bit more emotion. I'm not sure. But they, Daniel probably said something to the effect of, oh, King Darius, Listen, you know I was never going to follow your law. And, and you're going to throw me in this lion's den. And you know what? I serve a God that I have seen rescue people from worse situations than this. And God may come through for me here just like he did for them. But if, even if he doesn't, it's okay because you know I'm never going to pray to any other God but my Heavenly Father. I don't know. Maybe the conversation went something like that. At any rate, Daniel goes in the lion's den, and here comes the incredible plot twist in the story. Here comes this unexpected development. Here comes the, no, I am your father moment of Daniel chapter 6. Look at verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? You know what I find interesting? Darius never said, he never yelled into the lion's den, Daniel, did all the prayers of everyone in my country that have been prayed to me, King Darius, over the last 30 days, have those prayers been able to save you? He didn't say that. He said, Daniel, did your God save you? Maybe there's this moment right here with, with King Darius where he realized, I'm not a God because if I was, I could save you, but there is only one God who can save you, and we are back to the reality and the truth of all things in this world, that there really is only one God that can save you, that can save Daniel, that can save us. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. He rose to life three days later, and we get to be saved through faith in him. The principle still applies. Nobody can save anybody other than God. And here Darius is waking up to that reality. Did your God save you? Verse 21, Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Friends, we just read one of the great miracles of the Bible. Because you don't throw anybody into a den of hungry lions and they come out without a scratch. That doesn't happen. This is also one of those places where I wish there was another paragraph in the Bible. Well, what did they do all night? I mean, let's say there's 10 lions in there. 
Did the angel visually present himself? Did Daniel and this angel have a nice long conversation? I mean, did, did they play with the lions? I wonder about that. Did, did, they, did they scratch the lions behind their ears and they go, oh, you big guy, come here, let me hug, come here. Did they have a big ball of yarn? Go, go get it, go get it. I don't know. This is where my brain goes sometimes. I, I just does. I wish there was another paragraph. Maybe, maybe Daniel got a good night's sleep. Maybe Daniel just snuggled up next to one of those big old lions and he fell asleep. And if he did, again, if, this is a paragraph I, it's not in the Bible, but if that happened, it tells me something, that when you are safe and secure in God's arm, you can sleep through any tough circumstance in life. Because only as a follower of the Lord can you ever have that kind of peace in your life. The world around you may be falling apart, but a Christian can still sleep with some lions. It's true. Well, here's the second jaw-dropping plot twist in the story. Look at verse 24. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Yeah, we'll just leave that right there. You can wrestle with that one. You know, this sermon today, this Daniel chapter 6, it's a lot like Daniel chapter 3. Last week I said, you know, I could preach four more sermons on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. I could preach four or five more sermons just out of Daniel 6. There's that much truth. There's that much application. There's that much left. There's that much meat left on that bone, you know. But I'm just going to encourage you. I want you to go take your own deeper dive, and this will be a great thing as you, as you continue to grow and mature. Go spend more time this week with Daniel chapter 6 and pray over it as you read and let God bring these truths out to you. But what resonates with me before we're done here today is this. It's the public nature of Daniel's faith. The world around Daniel had completely changed. Think about that in his life. A whole new government, a whole new land to live in, whole new jobs, facing death many times, and now he's under a new king. And people, everything around Daniel was constantly changing. But you know what never did? It was his faith in the Lord that didn't change. And you know what? In many ways, that resonates with me today, and it probably resonates with you, because it seems like we are living in a world that seems to be changing by the hour, doesn't it? I look around our world, and I read the news, and I see what's going on, and I'm like, this is changing so fast. Sometimes the America that I'm living in today feels so different than the America of my childhood. You know, I would even say that many of us could make the argument that America in 2020 feels completely different than America in 2019. See, here's the reality about life, is that circumstances are always changing. Nothing stays the same. There are things that are changing around us all the time. But let me just tell you, friends, you want to know what old school faith is? Old school faith is like the world can change around me, but my faith in God does not. 
Everything in the world can change. Everything can fall apart. But what will not fall apart is what I believe about my heavenly Father. Friends, that is old school. Because we are a people who are what? We are a people who are going to be anchored in conviction. We're going to draw our lines and say, this is where God wants me to be, and I'm not going to cross those. Where does this conviction come from? It comes from God's word. You've got to read it. You've got to be invested in God's word if you want to know where to draw these lines of conviction. We're going to be people of conviction. We're going, to people who, we're going to be people who obey God, not man's expectations. Because man's expectations change all the time. But what we are grounded in is God's commands. And that's what we're going to be anchored to. You know, we're going to be people who just don't blend into a godless society. And I see a world that is growing more and more godless by the year. Which should mean this, that if we are living anchored in our convictions and we're going to obey God, not man, that we should stand out more and more every year. As the world gets more ungodly, we should become more holy and that we will stand out. We don't blend with the direction the world is going. That's old school. And we're going to just live out our faith in public just like Daniel did. We're just going to be people who try to let our light shine. We're going to be people who strive to be the salt of the earth. We're trying to be people who say, God, use me at whatever stage of life I'm in to serve you and to honor you, and you use my life, God, in any way that you want. That's all we're trying to be. That's living your faith out in public. That's not being obnoxious. That's not being a jerk. That's, not, that's just being a Christian. God, use me. Lord, put the words in my mouth to say what needs to be said. Lord, put me in a place where I can have the greatest influence for you. Just living your faith in public. And boy, that takes a lot of prayer to do that these days. So why don't we pray about it? Can we pray together? Lord, we just first of all thank you for your words here in Daniel. That Lord, you have left for us this incredible, inspired, true story of when Daniel just decided to continue to live his faith in public and be all you've called him to be. And it put him in an incredibly difficult situation, but his faith didn't move. And so, Lord, my prayer would just be this. Would, could we, would you help us be people like that? that? Lord, we don't know what the future holds, but we do know the future will be full of change. Lord, help us to be people that do not change off our convictions, that do not change our trust in you, that will stand firm, humbly before you, willing to do and be who you want us to be. Lord, we know you'll take care of us. We know, Lord, you're right there with us. Lord, I pray you draw people to our church family who just want to live obedient for you. Just know that there's a, there's a better way to do life people who know that you care more about where we're going than where we've been, people that can bathe in your glory, surrounded by your grace, that knows we're not perfect, but you are, and we're just striving to be like you. Lord, in all things, just help us to glorify you in all we do, and it's in your name we pray these things. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.